1: Welcome back one and all to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. Just one tongue coming at you again today, doing a little uh, opinion scholarship on Edward Edinger, the great um, depth psychologist, student of uh student of Carl Jung, uh, just a tremendous um a tremendous scholar I've come to really enjoy and been reading some uh quite a bit of um, Ego and Archetype and this will be part 3. I'm going to do one more of these to wrap up that book. And then at some point in the near future, there's one more Edinger book um, that focuses on pre-Socratic philosophers that is fantastic. That's going to be coming. Um, I might do one thing first. So uh, Kyle and I have been reading some some fiction, which is, you know, I usually don't have a lot of time for fiction. Um, I enjoy it, but I just don't usually... Set the time aside to do it. Um, Audiobooks makes it a lot easier. So what I've done is um, read C.S. Lewis, his Space Trilogy. If anybody hasn't heard of it, uh, they include uh, three books. I have them right here. Out of the Silent Planet, Paralandria, and The Hideous Strength. So these books, I think they're written between the 30s and 40s, maybe? Uh, But they're super interesting. Um, There's a couple of things in particular that I really want to to share with you guys about it. Um, I was surprised. With C.S. Lewis, you end up having a lot of philosophy and a lot of theology who works its way into the story. So maybe it shouldn't have been a surprise to me. But some really interesting shit that's right up our collective alley. So I'll be bringing that to you at some point. Um, Today, though, I want to give you kind of the beginning of the latter half of Ego and Archetype. Um, it's not exactly easy to organize this um, in sections the way that I'm doing it, so bear with me. I'm going to call this episode One Many Trinity. So not one, two, three, but One Many Trinity. We're going to talk, and because Edinger does a lot in this book, we're going to talk a bit about um, Christianity and Jesus symbolically. But before we do that, we're going to talk a lot more about um, I want to say about depth psychology, you know, the kind of stuff that Carl Jung talked about when he talked about the archetypes and the unconscious. Um, but you're gonna find that when we start talking about this today, we're gonna to be doing a lot more reading from these ancient philosophers and religious folks, um, and yet when Carl Jung's talking about psychology, he's talking about the same thing. So it's very interesting, but also difficult. You know, if you're just reading Carl Jung, um, you're going to get pretty straightforward, maybe as scientific as possible, exploration of the human psyche. But when you read Edinger, and that's what we're doing today, you're going to see how much it overlaps with religious ideas, a very specific kind of religious idea, ontological idea an idea about creation and origins in the beginning. And this is what's always fascinated me. Um, So I'm going to try to help you understand how these two um, religious and psychological kind of modes of thinking really are different ways of talking about the same thing and what that means. All right, so that brings me to the first section, which I'm going to call pre-existence and individuality pre-existence, and individuality. So the first quote from Edinger opens like this. Each person has his own unique version of the experience of individuality, which is incommunicable. Yet the form of the experience is universal and can be recognized by all. It seems that the goal of the individual's psychic development is to come ever closer to the realization that his own personal individuality is identical with the eternal archetypal individual. So no, that's a mouthful, but let's let's break this down. So when he says each person has his own unique version of the experience of individuality, which is incommunicable, what does he mean? Exactly what it sounds like. Every person experiences what it's like to be a human being, an individual. Everyone knows what it's like to be the subject, right? I am the subject of my experience, and everything else is an object. You're an object. The sky is an object. You know, everything else is, is other, right? I am me, and everything else is other. And we all have that experience. We all know what it means to be an individual, to be a subject, to have a subjective perspective of the world. We all know that, and yet we can never get into somebody's experience. I I don't know what it's like to be you. I I know what it's like to be an individual because I am one, but I don't know what it's like to be you. And so that's how it's incommunicable. How can I explain to you what it's like to be me? I have no idea what it's like to be you. How can I compare and contrast? How can I help you understand? You know, It should be, and and, uh, Aldous Huxley had a great phrase for this where he said human beings are... Island universes. You know, we're self-contained. We're isolated, enclosed, and isolated from everything out there. And that's how it's incommunicable. I can't, I can't help you to understand. I can't, I wish I could grab your hand and pull you into my being so you can see what it's what it is to be me. And even though we can't do that, and we can never know what it's like to be another person, we know the form of it because we are ourselves a person. And so Ettinger says. Yet the form of the experience is universal and can be recognized by all. Of course, I see another human being. I recognize something like myself. I have no idea what it's like to be that individual. But I have some idea of the form, right? Because I am an example of the same form. And this is what Edinger calls the eternal archetypal individual. Right? So we're all existing as versions of this ideal thing we're calling the archetypal individual. It's like when Plato talks about the world of forms. Right, It's like you can imagine there's a form of a dog or a form of a table or pick whatever thing you want. And you know there's all kinds of different versions of that thing. But how do we know that a poodle and a Rottweiler are both dogs? How do we know that a bench and a boardroom table are, bo- are, are both tables? We, we know because they fit the form of a table. And see, the form of a table doesn't exist really. But you know it when you see it. You know it when something fits that pattern. And there's something like this going on here with, with Edinger when he says that we're all individuals. We all live the experience of being a form of what it means to be an individual, right? We're all different variations of what it means to be an individual. And so we can recognize that when we see it. It's that common thread on which our own individuality is based, but also on which everybody else's individuality is based. And so we have a connection there, even though we are island universes. We can never intimately know what it is to be another person, And then I also want to mention that this idea of, an, of the archetype or the archetypal individual of which we are a version. We are, we are an actualized version of this form. It reminds me, if you just picture what that might look like in your mind, it reminds me of um, a hermetic dictum. We've talked about, um, we've talked about the hermeticism before and, and Hermes Trismegistus and some of that philosophy. Um, and he, they're famous for saying something, as above, so below. Right As above, as in heaven, so below, so on earth, as in spirit, so in matter, something like that. So as in God, so in man, right And if the archetypal individual, if the archetypes are these this numinous, you know spiritual, um, ideal, I- you know non-physical existent, that's like the above, right? And we are the ego, we are the below. The ego is like. The self is like the the archetypal psyche, and we'll see more of this in a bit. Um, the next quote Edinger brings to us it goes like this, um, and this is kind of a reminder or refresher of what we talked about in the last couple of um, uh, uh, earlier episodes of the series. He says individuation is a process of differentiation, having for its goal the development of the individual personality. So why am I why am I telling you this. So individuation is something that uh, we talked about uh, previously. It's the the idea of of separating yourself from the unconscious or separating yourself from God. Getting sufficient distance and being sufficiently distinct that you can turn around and you have the perspective to then see what it is you've separated yourself from. It's impossible to know what God exists. If you believe you are God, let's say, if you believe you're, you're indistinct from the universe, um, h- how do you know the universe exists? Only you. It's only you. You have to pull yourself away from it and have the distance and perspective to look back on it and say, ah. right. And that's what individuation is all about. It's about becoming conscious, being able to say, ah, about more, about more of what you are, about more of what reality is. Uh, and there's all sorts of symbolism, um, religious symbolism, that goes along with this idea of individuation. But Carl Jung and the psychology, the depth psychologist, thought about this as the goal of psychological development, like what we're all working towards. We want to become sufficiently individual. And this idea of differentiation, I think it's important because we're just relating to the, the last quote here. It's like we all start from the same kind of undifferentiated archetypal starting place. We all start off as being, again, a version of the form of the archetypal individual. So we're all identical in the beginning, whatever that means. We have to become different in order to exist on our own in order to become something specific and not blending into the background, not becoming invisible or disappearing into the unconscious. We have to become more and more conscious, ever more conscious. And and somehow becoming ever more conscious means to exist ever more deeply. There's something like that going on. And he says... One's unique individuality has a transpersonal origin. Jung puts it this way. He says, quote, the self, remember the self is like the, this idea of God, or this, the complete psyche, uh, all, you know, everything, the wholeness, the complete kit and caboodle. The self is God to Jung. And he says the self, like the unconscious, is an a priori existent, out of which the ego evolves. Now, if you don't know your Kant, or if you don't know your Latin, you may not know what a priori means. It just means before experience, like something exists before you have an experience of it. That's what a priori means. So the self, like the unconscious, is an a priori existent out of which the ego evolves. It is the thing that exists first or pre-exists, the ego which comes into existence. The unconscious is that from which the ego is born. And then he says, it is an unconscious prefiguration of the ego. The self is an unconscious prefiguration of the ego. Now, if the self is God, and what the self is really is a pre-formulation of what the ego will, will be, will, will get to be eventually... I can't help but be reminded of a biblical phrase that that human beings were made in the image of God. And So the self is that image, right? The prefiguration of the ego. It is the image that, that will be embodied or incarnated in human beings, in mankind. Edinger says, And for this reason, the egocentrism of consciousness is a reflection of the self-centrism of the unconscious, right? So, right? so if God or the self psychologically, the archetypal psyche, let's say, if this is a pre-existing thing, maybe it's an eternal numinous sort of reality, and it's the pattern from which uh, human consciousness takes its form, right? You know, made in the image of God, right? So if that's what's happening here, I'm just trying to put myself in the perspective of God here, which is a strange thing to say. But if I'm God, then I am all that exists. I'm all that is. Uh, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and, and all that sort of thing. So to call God self-centered, it doesn't have a negative connotation. It's just sort of logical. If I'm God, I am the all. I am, I am everything. And so being self-centered just seems to be... Um, a given. There is nothing else. So of course you're self-centered. The self is all there is. It's the whole kit and caboodle. What he's saying is that our experience of being egocentric, of of seeing the world through the perspective of me, me all the time, me and mine and, and, and my goals and my values and my plans and my pain and my suffering and all that sort of stuff. We we live our lives through this egocentric lens. And it's impossible not to. Like that's how we uh, encounter reality, through this subjective perspective. What, what Ettinger is saying, or what Jung is saying here, actually, is that this self-centrism of God, you know, God being the center of things because God is all that exists, this is a reflection I mean, this, this is the reason why we experience ourselves this, in, in the same way, in this egocentric sort of way. We are the center of the universe, each one of us. We're the center of our own reality, anyway. And he's saying that is the case because we are modeled after God, the self. And that is how the self is by nature. We're self-centered because God is all that exists. And when we say we, I, self. That's what we mean. The part of us that is God. And that's a rabbit hole I'm going to try not to get, go down too deeply. At least for right now. So he says the egocentrism is the ego's imitation of the self. Then, by becoming conscious of the fact that we're imitating the ego will become aware of that which it is imitating or at least i would say that it's imitating something now you have a something that you can now seek after and what that something is jung says is the transpersonal center and unity of individuality the self right so when you become aware that your existence your reality is acting out copying imitating some pattern that that existed before you ever were. And you look around and you can see the pattern being lived out by by people just like you all over the place. And when you realize that you're imitating a, a pattern, then you will then you'll ask the question, what is it I'm imitating exactly? And what the hell does that mean, that I'm imitating something that exists before me, that I can't exactly see? I'm, I'm powerless, but to live out this pattern that already exists. It's like I exist in order to live out the pattern, to act it out and live it out. So what is it I'm imitating? As soon as you know that you're imitating something, then you're on a religious quest. Edinger says... Important material on the experience of individuality is found in the philosophical speculations of the ancients concerning the one or the monad. So, before I finish this quote, let's talk about that for a second. The one or the monad, what is that? So, this is the idea that God is one, that reality is one that maybe there's no distinction between God and reality, that that oneness is one big oneness. There is no distinction between anything, in fact. All of experience, all of reality, all of existence, all of potential is one thing. And this is an idea that's deeply ancient, a deeply ancient religious idea and philosophical idea. And so to call that the monad, the one thing, the one, this is something that we see in in ancient religion and philosophy all the time. The argument is something like, is there one or is there many? And the paradox is that it seems seems to be both. You know, we can see that all of nature is sort of one big continuum, you know. The cycles of birth and death, the cycles, the cycles of you know energy being recycled. It can't be created or destroyed, right? The the seasons and the cycles in nature. Everything is tied together and, and working in this one big system. And when you have the right perspective, you can see all of the cosmos is one thing. You know that's the idea of the the butterfly effect. It's, everything's connected. So uh, the flap of a butterfly's wings over here creates a hurricane over here. Um, or influences that kind of thing, we can see that we can understand that. And yet, our experience also tells us that every th- that things are distinct. There's a computer screen next to me, and a chair over here, and you know, some people upstairs, and, and the whole big world out there. And all of that is seemingly distinct and separate from one another. So, so is there one or is there many? And this is an ancient question. It's one. It's deeply fascinating. Even today, if you if you ask yourself that. Um, is there a reality to to the multiplicity of the world? And there's all kinds of fun thought experiments you can you can think about, like like if you could zoom in to the atomic level and see the cosmos strictly from an atomic perspective. There is no distinction between me and this table, or me and the people upstairs, or me and the big world out there. On an atomic level, there is no distinction. It's just a bunch of of atoms floating around interacting. There is no distinction. There's ways in which you can see that the many... The idea of distinction is something like an illusion in some ways. And how do you reconcile those things? The one and the many. We're going to be talking about this here. Um, Edinger is going to be bringing us some various quotes from these ancients. So let's let's jump in here. Let me finish this quote. Um, Again, let's just kind of restarting this sentence. Important material on the experience of individuality is found in the philosophical speculations of the ancients concerning the one or the monad. Their speculations about the one that lies behind all phenomena was a projection of the psychological fact of being an individual. Right, so when he's... he's he, people are coming up with this idea of, of a unity, a grand unity of things, and that that God or reality or both are something like a monad. He's saying we think that... Because that's how we experience ourselves. right? We, we're projecting, psychologically, we're projecting onto God the unitary subjective perspective we find in ourselves. So this is sort of a reversal of the hermetic as above, so below. This is something like as below, so above. We, we experience ourselves to be a particular way to be an island universe, a windowless monad, self-conclosed and self-sufficient and and completely cut off from the world. And so we're a self-sustaining, self-sufficient unity, and we project that onto, onto God. And he's going to give us a bunch of examples here. He's going to give us a quote from a philosopher, an ancient philosopher called Hippolytus. Hippolytus said, The beginning of all things is the monad, imperishable, incomprehensible, the creator and cause of all things. So this is like Aristotle's unmoved mover, the creator and cause of all things, so that at the very beginning, everything was one. This is the monad. And we can see that in in modern physics, if you imagine the singularity, if you imagine the Big Bang, when all things, all of reality was condensed down to one a singularity to one monad that was, according to modern modern physics, the beginning of all things, as far as we know. So you can you, we can we can relate to this idea that the beginning of things was a monad, and then he brings up Pythagoras. Pythagoras said that the cosmos derives from the monad. It is identified with fire, hence the source of both consciousness and energy. Why should that be? It's identified with fire. Fire as a symbol, and as a symbol, fire is basically two things: heat and light. And so, this is where it comes from: the idea of light, that which facilitates our vision, that which allows us to see. And we associate our sight with consciousness. This is why, the, you know, the, the Mesopotamian god Marduk he had eyes all around his head. He was the all-seeing eye. He represented consciousness. So the monad, symbolized by fire, represents light or consciousness and energy or heat. Then he says, In Plato's Parmenides, the only conclusions reached about the one are paradoxes. The one is neither at rest nor in motion. The one is both all things and nothing whatsoever. The chief thing that Plato Uh, demonstrates is that the one cannot be apprehended by logic because it involves contradictions alright so this should start to sound a lot more familiar to depth psychology this reminds you a lot of what uh, young student Neumann talked about when he talked about the Ouroboros we've talked about that ad nauseum hopefully you'll uh, you'll be familiar with the idea But the Ouroboros is the symbol of the snake That's eating its own tail it's, it's, it's a circle It's a continual, infinite circle Same reason why my wedding ring is a circle To represent this this you know eternal thing But also to represent the uncreated See, that's why the snake is being born from its own mouth Swallowing its own tail It begins and ends in the same place It's self-contained It's its own, you know, uh, uh, unity And so being self-created is a bit of a paradox. And so when, we're, when we talk about ontology origins, when we talk about mysticism, this, these paradoxes, they just come naturally. You expect them, and this is what we see here. The one is neither at rest or in motion. Well, how can that be? It's a paradox. It must be one or the other, or, or, or in this case, maybe both. Again, again a paradox is it neither at rest nor in motion? And here's a better example. The one is both all things and nothing. And how can that be the case, that it can be all things and nothing? And I'm going to give you a good analogy, which I've given you before, but um, but I'll give it to you now because it uh, fits uh, very well. If you think about all things... Together, if you think of all things at once, and this is what the orboros or the self-created symbol was supposed to represent—the union of opposites. So you take all good and all evil, and you put them together. You know, all being and all non-being. You put them together. The feminine, the masculine, life and death. Whatever opposites you want, you, you can take. You can divide the world up, all of, the, of experience and reality, into two poles and you put them together, then you have everything all at once. And something interesting happens when you have everything all at once. You have something that has all attributes because it's everything all at once. Because it has all attributes, it kind of has no attributes. You can't say that that thing is this or that because it's more than this or that. Always. So it becomes nothing. The moment it becomes everything, it becomes nothing. And the line is, it's so fine that it doesn't exist. And you can think about this like if you take all the music that's ever been written and you play it all at once, what you're going to hear is static. You're going to hear no sound at all, no music, certainly. You take all the color, the wavelengths of light, visible light, and you put them together and you get white, you get no color at all. When you take everything and you put them together, paradoxically, you have nothing. And so when Plato says, the one is both all things and nothing, this is the kind of idea that you should be playing with in your head. Then he talks about Plotinus, another philosopher, a later philosopher, from the 3rd century AD. Plotinus says, it is by the one that all beings are beings. As the one begets all things, it cannot be any of them. There must be something that is fully self-sufficient, that is the one. It needs nothing outside itself to exist. It is always present to us and we to it. We dance around it. In this dance, the soul looks upon the source of life, of intelligence, the origin of being, the root of the soul. Fuck Plotinus, that's good. So, according to Plotinus, it is by the one that all beings are beings, right? So again, the monad is there in the beginning. It's responsible for creation, for everything. Plotinus says so. He says, as the one begets all things, right? It cannot be any of them. And this is interesting, right? As the one begets something, it can't also be the thing it begets. Like if I am a mother and I have a baby, the baby isn't the mother. It's something else, right? He says, as the one begets all things, it cannot be any of them. So there's this dissociation or separation that takes place between God and creation. And in fact, if you look at the Bible and the story of creation, that's what you see. In the beginning, there was undifferentiated nothingness, the abyss, the deep. And the cosmos gets created by separating that, separating the light from the dark, separating the heavens from the earth, separating woman from man. All of that happens through a process of separation. And that implies, if you unseparate all the separation, that everything in the beginning was one, and you have the monad again. And then you and you can see this idea of the one and the many here because if the one is all that exists that that's the self that's God, and it creates something it can't also be the thing it created, so the one becomes many and it's a paradox and it's not a paradox you know and so psychologically the self cannot be the ego there must be they must there must be a distinction between the self and the ego, and this is the distinction between our consciousness and our unconscious. The dis- same religious distinction between creator and creation. The distinction between father and son that we see in Christianity. That's, that's the Jesus figure. Simultaneously, father and son. Simultaneously, one and many. And then he gives us another quote here, this time from Valentinian, and it goes like this. First, there was the deep the father of all called Bethos. Out of him emanated Nous, and he is said to be equal and like to him from whom he had emanated. And Ettinger says, if we understand these images as projected psychology, then the only begotten one must refer to the empirical ego that emerges from the a priori self, the ego that, that emerges from the unconscious. So let's just let's just recap this little creation myth here from Valentinian. First there was the deep, the father of all things called Bethos. And out of him emanated Nous. Now noose is, is it means something like mind. And Valentinian says that Bethos and Nous are equal and like. Right? So it's like first there was Bethos, Bethos gave Birth to Noose, but Noose is equal and like to Bethos. It's created it, so it can't be the same thing. Just like we saw before, but it paradoxically is because you've got this overarching unity, the oneness, and this is how the ego emerges from the self, from the unconscious, and yet we exist as a creature, both conscious and unconscious. We're not conscious of everything, even about ourselves. There are things going on that are unconscious within us. There are things going on that we're not aware of out there, and so we're unconscious of them. But our experience includes, and the universe, the reality includes both, the unconscious and the conscious aspects. So we are one and we are many. We are ego and we are self. We are God and we are man. Edinger says, the experience of individuality has two centers, the ego and the self. Right? The ego is the conscious part, the self, the, the unconscious, or the, or the wholeness that rounds it off. He says the ego is an incarnation which participates in time, space, and causality. Oh, Pump the brakes for a second. The experience of the individual right, has two centers, the ego and the self. And he says the ego is an incarnation of the self it's an embodiment of this pre-existent thing that we're calling god or the self and that thing the, the ego participates in time and space and causality that's you and me you know we're the creations of god and we're participating in the material physical world the self on the other hand edinger says the self is, is in another world beyond consciousness and it's particularizing modes of experience. And then he gets to the point here. He says, the ego is the center of subjective identity. The self, the center of objective identity. We're both an objective and a subjective. A conscious and an unconscious. He says, the same psychological fact is represented by the myth of the diascori. And, the, and so we're going back to ancient Greece here. And, and who were the Dioscori? Well, there were two sons of Zeus, twins, Castor and Pollux, if you guys know. Castor is mortal and Pollux, immortal. Zeus, Zeus impregnates and, and, and has these two sons, these twin sons born. One is mortal, one is immortal. And that's what it's like to be a human being. Part of us conscious, part of us unconscious, part of us mortal, you know, tied and attached and anchored to the material physical world, part of us immortal, unconscious, tied to the numinous pre existent pattern, ar- archetypal reality, whatever that is. He says we are left with only one experience that we all indubitably share the experience of being. A windowless monad, right? As Huxley would say, an island universe. The experience of being the lone inhabitant of a sealed world. And since this experience is the primary feature of human existence, we come into compassionate relation to others. The ego is windowless, but the self is a window on other worlds of being. So even though, again, just going back to where we started, even though we cannot put ourselves in the body, in the psyche of anybody else, we know the form of it because we are a form of it. And so that gives us a relation to others. We know what it's like to be an individual, to be an ego, to be conscious. And so when we encounter somebody else that is, we recognize it even though we can't know it. So we understand and exist with other individuals by merit of knowing what it is to also be a self-contained conscious ego. We are all modeled from and imitate the same archetypal self. And Edinger says, the result is that we experience ourselves as part of a continuum. A continuum of humanity. A continuum of life. A continuum of being. At the broadest level. He says, I am reminded of the problem in physics concerning the nature of light. Is light made up of particles or waves, individual units or a continuum? Current data requires that it be considered paradoxically as both. And so it is with the psyche. We are both unique, indivisible units of being and also part of the continuum which is the universal wave of life. Paradoxically, one and many. And that brings me to the next section, which I'm going to call One, Two, Trinity, Wholeness. And we're going to open up with a quote from Carl Jung, and he's talking about the symbol of the Trinity in Christianity. And this is what he says. He says, The image of quaternity... So before I even finish the sentence, what is he talking about here? Well, quaternity sounds, means a lot what it's, like what it sounds like, something divided into four sections, a quaternity. And this is important for Jung because it's associated with this, uh, probably the most important symbol uh, to Jung, which is the mandala symbol. And it, it's supposed to represent the self. It's supposed to represent wholeness, um, and, and it's supposed to represent God. So the quaternity is a circle with a center, and it's divided into four sections. And so it has to have all four sections to be complete. So when he says quaternity, that's what he's getting at. Okay, so he says, the image of quaternity is considered as bringing the trinity to completion by the addition of the fourth previously rejected element, namely matter, devil, and the dark side. All right, so again, fair enough. The trinity is three. Carl Jung is reminding us that for the quaternity represents wholeness. So the Trinity is incomplete symbolically. There's something missing from it. What is missing, he says? The fourth previously rejected element, which is matter, devil, and the dark side. When we think about God, we typically don't include the devil, do we? When we think about spirit, we don't typically include matter, Do we? So something is is missing. He says, he interprets the Trinity as an incomplete representation of deity, perhaps necessary for a certain period of psychic development, but inadequate for the needs of individuation because it leaves out the evil side of God. In a monotheistic religion, everything that goes against God can only be traced back to God himself. So what's Jung trying to say here? He's saying that if you believe in one God, which is the monotheistic standard, then God is one. Just like the monad we're talking about. There's nothing outside of God. Everything, is, everything can roll back up to God. God is the cause and reason for all. So if we're trying to understand God, but we're leaving out something, then we're missing the completeness that we need to understand what God is, the one. And what we leave out are the same, the same things we leave out of our own psychological understanding. The thing Jung talks about with ourselves is integrating the shadow, integrating the anima, these parts of our, these archetypes, these parts of our experience that we don't want to attach ourselves to, that we don't want to believe about ourselves. The shadow is a great example. It's like we are all animals in a way capable of terrible violence and, and and all kinds of things for self-preservation and other instincts. We're capable of strangling somebody, killing somebody, shooting somebody. We're capable of doing it for noble reasons, but also terrible reasons. And, and if we don't come to grips with that potential within ourselves, then we're kind of ruled by it. We're scared by it. We hide from it. We, you know, and it, and it, in doing so, we allow the negative sides of our personality to kind of run wild and maybe do harm even to our, to, to ourselves. So integrating that coming under, bringing that under our control, understanding, yes, we have this, this potential, uh, for evil. Um, but we know that about ourselves, and we use it more as a tool that we have access to if we need it, and not as something that kind of takes over our lives. So we have to integrate, and this is the idea. We have all of these this idea about God. We leave out this little chunk we call evil and matter and devil. We leave that out. But if God is one, we can't leave that out, because it's incomplete, We need to roll that back in. We need to integrate that shadow back into the idea of God to get the completeness, to understand what God really is. He says, Every function of energy in nature has the form of a pair of opposites, united by a third factor, their product. All events in time fall into a threefold pattern, a beginning, a middle, and an end. The conscious mind thinks of time in the same kind of three categories, past, present, and future. And then he says, the Pythagorean number symbolism is pertinent here. The number one as the first and original number is, strictly speaking, not a number at all. One as, as unity and totality exists prior to the awareness of numbers. Thus, one symbolically corresponds to the orboric state prior to creation and the separation of things. Two is the first real number, since with it is born the possibility of discriminating one thing from another. Two symbolizes the act of creation, the emergence of the ego from the original state of unity. Two implies opposition, a state of conflict, Three, however, is the sum of one and two and unites them both within within itself. It is the reconciling symbol that resolves the conflict state of two. To three would apply Young's comment about the symbolic significance of the Holy Spirit when he says the Holy Ghost is a union of opposites. The third term is the conclusion of the process. It restores the original unity of the one on a higher level. So if God is one, it it must remain one. And if we're trying to imagine, um, you know, God is made up of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, they need to reconcile, right? They need to be one thing also. This is the paradox. We're invoking the paradox here. They must remain one thing. And I'll just push on. He says, There is an exact parallel in the formula Hegel proposed for understanding the historical process. First, an original position is established. This is called the thesis. Next, the opposite position is constellated and finally overthrows the first. This is called the antithesis. In the final phase, the one-sidedness and inadequacy of the antithesis is recognized and replaced by a synthesis of the two opposites. So you start with your thesis, then you get the opposite. It's opposite, it's antithesis. And what's left is the reconciliation of those two together, the synthesis. So in all these cases, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um... Th- you know thesis antithesis synthesis you you see these this trinitarian form formula you see this threefold you know process and you see that again in nature when he said every function in nature has uh, you know a form of two pairs of opposites and a third factor that that are their product you see it everywhere this this trinitarian model everywhere we see it in nature, we see it in psychology, we see it in religion. He says, there is a tendency for mankind to conceive of deity in a threefold nature. The Christian trinity, of course there's Babylonian and Egyptian trinities, and Greek trinities, you know, Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades, and the various embodiments of a triple mother goddess, which you have different forms of in Greek religion. In, Greek, in, uh, in Greece, there were three fates. In Teutonic myths, there were three Norns. A widespread tendency to associate deity with a threefold nature. So, how are we to understand this in the light of our conviction that the psyche has a fourfold structure? Remember, a quaternity. And Ettinger says three would symbolize a process. Four symbolizes a goal. See, and this is how you round out the Trinity. You add the fourth component, you complete it, and the completion here is the goal. What does that mean? What is the goal? Edinger says, I likewise made use of a threefold pattern. The three entities being the ego, the self, and the connecting link between them, which he calls the the ego-self-axis. He says development of consciousness occurs via a threefold cycle. First, ego identifies with the self. Second, the ego is alienated from the self. And then the third is the ego reuniting with the self. So here you have the same threefold pattern. And he says these three stages correspond precisely with the three terms of the Christian trinity, The father, which is the self, the son, the ego, and the Holy Ghost, which is the ego-self axis. The Holy Ghost is that which connects the father and son. That's that which connects God and man. He says three days is the symbolic duration of the sea night journey. So this is... uh, this is a common mythological motif, but biblically you can see Jonah, swallowed by the well, was, was in the well for three days before, before resurrection. Christ, of course, was dead for three days before the resurrection. Um, he, also, he also adds that Christ was crucified between two thieves. So you have the three people up there on the crosses. He says the god Mithra was represented between two torchbearers, so Mithra alongside two torchbearers. In this connection, one thinks of the saying of Lao Tzu. If you remember, Lao Tzu was the Chinese philosopher who wrote the Tao Te Ching, the founder of Taoism. And in the Tao Te Ching, he says, the one engenders the two, the two engenders the three, and the three engenders all things. And that brings us to the next section, which is... I'm going to call it Dialectic of Good and Evil. So we were talking about Hegel, you know, thesis, antithesis, and thin- synthesis. We we want to we want to talk about this from a religious perspective, and maybe even from a Christian perspective. So in Christian religious terms, thesis and antithesis are God and the devil, right? God and Satan. The question is, can they be reconciled? Can God be reconciled to Satan? Satan to God. Now, when Carl Jung was talking about the Trinity, he said, the image of quaternity brings the Trinity to completion by the addition of the fourth previously rejected element, namely matter, the devil, the dark side. He said he interprets the Trinity as an incomplete representation of deity, remember, inadequate for the needs of individuation. He also says, multiplicity is manifested by the projection of parts on the individual psyche into the outer world. In such a state of dispersal, a process of collecting is needed. The process involves accepting one's own, uh, excuse me, accepting as one's own all those aspects of being which have been left out in the course of ego development. There is a unity behind the apparent multiplicity, and it is this pre-existent unity which has motivated the whole arduous task of self-collection in the first place. So that might be a little confusing, but I want to relate this to the, to the statement that uh, Jung made earlier about the Trinity. Because remember, when he talked about the matter and the devil and the dark side being left out of this idea of God, and therefore the idea of God being incomplete, And then he reminds us that in a monotheistic religion, everything rolls back to God, including evil and the devil and the things we're trying to exclude. They cannot be excluded. So they have to be integrated back into the idea of God. Now, the connection I want to make here is this idea of projection. He says that multiplicity in the world is manifested by our projecting onto the world parts of our own individual psyche. And so we have to, if we want to be whole, we have to collect those things and reintegrate them back into us. So if I, for instance, can't integrate my own shadow, this the violent instincts within a human being uh, that I may, I may need at some point in my life, but I reject all of that. And, and by rejecting it, by refusing to see it in myself, maybe I start seeing it in other people. I'm, I'm concerned other people are violent. Maybe I'm scared to leave the house and I become agoraphobic. Other people are out there to get me. You know, I'm the only good one. If I can't see that within myself, then maybe I'll never be brave enough to face it in the world out there. And I'll never know about this part of my own reality, this part of my own being. I'm rejecting it. I have to integrate it in order to be complete, to recognize that as a part of myself, and to to find the value there. I have to resolve the projection. And he's saying the same thing about God. We have to resolve the projection that that prevents us from understanding God to be both all of the good things that we generally associate with God and have no problem with, but all of the evil things as well. God is one. We are one. A monad. Just like we imagine God to be. He says... A union of the quaternity with the trinity in a more complete synthesis is required. The trinity archetype seems to symbolize individuation as a process, while the quaternity symbolizes its goal or completed state. Three is the number for egohood, four for wholeness, the self. But since individuation is never truly complete... Each temporary state of completion or wholeness must be submitted once again to the dialectic of the Trinity in order for life to go on. Now this last bit is confusing, but I think it's interesting. It's one thing to talk about completing um, you know, the, the wholeness of God, to reunifying uh, God with the devil and, and having that having that complete picture to it to analyze understanding ourselves to be uh, you know a, a monad in the same way um, you know integrating our own shadow I mean that's one thing but then to say that to say that completion is is never final that it's always the goalpost is always moving and, and you can understand this with I if I have a thesis and then the antithesis and then we Reconcile them with a synthesis. What happens is the synthesis becomes the thesis of a whole new dialectic. That this is the new starting place. Now that I have a synthesis, right, that begins a whole new thesis, right? There's going to be another antithesis and another synthesis, and on and on and on and on and on. There's no end to that. And this reminds me of God and reality as a process. And this is something we talked about when we talked about Alfred North Whitehead and his process metaphysics, the idea that that understanding God to be eternal is to recognize God as a process, something that continues. uh, And it's something like an interaction, like a back-and-forth process of transformation. And that back-and-forth process is, is going on between the conscious and the unconscious between God and man, between matter and spirit, between those opposites, the tension between the opposites that we talk about when we talk about opposites. That is the energy driving this eternal process. Whitehead would would describe God as eternal because the process is eternal. And I think that's really interesting here in this context. And That brings me to my conclusion an author named Paul Tillich. He talked about Carl Jung and he said something interesting. He said that Jung's discoveries reach to an ontology. This was unavoidable given the revelatory power he attributes to the symbols in which the archetypes express themselves. For to be revelatory, one must express the mystery of being. So, What this means is that Jung's psychology of the unconscious was not merely, or at least not only, a means of understanding psychological development. It was also a means of understanding the origins of reality itself. This is what makes Jung's psychology an ontology, and why the speculation of the ancients maps so neatly onto analytical psychology. How is it that we can speak of Jung in the same breath as Plato, Pythagoras, and Hippolytus? Because each of them dared propose a model of the origin and nature of existence, inspired by their contact with transpersonal archetypes. The eons between them make no difference, as that which they describe are fundamental realities. The ancient philosophers observed the external world and concluded that all of nature was one, a continuum of distinct but united wholeness. This unity they knew was eternal and constituted the basis for all other things. Jung, on the other hand, observed his psyche and discovered the exact same pattern, an eternal unity The self from which all egos, all other selves are birthed. How such a thing as modern psychology, ancient ontology, and religion can parallel one another so perfectly rests upon one and just one fact of human experience. It is the fact of experience itself. See, we encounter reality through experience. Through through our consciousness. This is how we know we exist. And the world out there is real. But just what the hell. Is experience. We know that our experience is not identical. To the world out there. After all. You have your own experience entirely apart from mine. And of course. There is much present in the world. And within ourselves for that matter. Which we do not experience consciously. So. Experience is not reality, and yet it is the only evidence we have for it. It's stated differently. We cannot distinguish an external reality from the phenomena of our inner experience. And this makes the birth of our consciousness and the birth of the cosmos one and the same thing for each and every one of us. When we are born, reality is born within us. And when we die, it's snuffed out. We all know that this sentiment is as true as it is false. It is a paradox, and quite as it should be. Now, if we accept that reality emerges, at least for us individually, when we emerge into life, then we cannot so easily distinguish ourself from God. We feel ourselves to be eternal and self-created and project these attributes equally onto God. And as Edinger showed us, we experience ourselves to be the subject of experience, the center of the universe, the monad. We then project this onto God. So what does this mean? Is it that we've invented the notion of God as a symbol onto which we project the mystery of our own isolated individuality? Or are we simply recognizing the pre-existent pattern on which our being is based? Is it as above so below? Or as below so above? The real question might be is there even a difference?
0: Well there you have it.